What does it cost you to listen? Maybe five minutes of your time, right? If I didn't listen to you, I wouldn't be sitting here today. You give me my five minutes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jill, for coming here this morning. Yeah, really thanks. It yeah. should be fun to do. It should be. It <laughs> yeah. should be fun. This is the first time I've had you on my podcast, but I yes. hope it's not the last. Hope we get to do this again. If I have anything more to say. Oh, you sure. have a lot to say. You did. You set up all of the Toastmasters at the American Club. I and did. Where, and where else? I was one of the original members of the FCCJ Toastmasters. That's what I thought. Or as they call it, Toastmasters at FCCJ. Okay, right. I joined that about 10 years ago, and I just left it a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And then I started the American Club Toastmasters mm-hmm. eight, nine, ten years ago, too. Right, you sure did. Because I, I came to the first couple, I believe. I think so. Yeah. The first couple I came to. Right. And I think I participated in that. Because I've been a Toastmaster even in my military time. As soon as I got out of the service, I joined the Toastmasters. Well, come on right. back. <laughs> We've got about 40 members, but typically 15 to 20 show up for most meetings, and then a few show up online. I'd like to start by asking, Joe, where were you born? I was born in Indiana, but I moved to Ohio when I was about 8, 9, 10 years old, around that time. So I grew up in the Midwest. Right, right. Do you have many siblings? I do. I have brothers. How many? What's, what's the number? Uh, let me think now. Okay. <laughs> I've got, well, one of my brothers passed away of early onset uh, Alzheimer's a few mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've got uh, two more brothers, one brother and a half brother. Okay. And then I've got a, a sister. Right. So you said a half brother? Mm-hmm. My, my father remarried and had a, they had a child okay, later. Okay, okay. So where are you in the rank? You have an older I'm brother. the oldest. You're the oldest? Mm-hmm. And then your younger, the brother under you? Is the half brother. Uh, the brother, my sister's next, and then my brother who passed away was next, and then another brother who lives in Indiana, and then the half-brother who lives in Ohio. Okay. So it's a big family. There's, it's there's all five, five of you? Five of you? It sounds like five. Uh, when I was growing up, there were four of us. Four of you. Right. Right. But your mother and father didn't stay together? No. Uh, they, they divorced shortly before i went to started university so they stayed together up until that time. they stayed together till i was about 18 i guess 18 that yeah. would be you your half brother no 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 you that was me my sister, sister and my two brothers and your two brothers mm-hmm. okay and then my father got remarried later mm-hmm. and had one more child. and had one more plus he okay. had a couple of stepdaughters okay they're all back in ohio except the one brother in indiana so, so what was it like growing up in the midwest when you were young it was a small town. There was about 2,500 people in our town. So everybody knew everyone? Pretty much, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. My dad was a pastor in the church there. Okay. What and type he, of church? Which one? It was one of the, I don't know what you would call them these days, Barry. it was called Church of God of Prophecy. A prophecy, okay. That was a pretty strict. Very strict? Not very, but pretty strict. Yeah. Was, there any, was there any singing? Oh, yeah. What about what about music? Music, yes, okay. piano or organ piano or, or other music. Okay, but there were things like, oh, you don't go dancing or you don't you go to dance. movies. Okay, right. Yeah, right. Uh, they. It's very, very close to what's known as the Assembly of God Church these days. Okay, 
But my father only did that for a couple of years, maybe three years. How old were you then during that time? Do you remember? Ooh, I was pre-teens in that oh, time. Oh, when he started? Mm-hmm. What did you do prior to that? Or was he always a pastor? No, no. He was, well, he had gone to seminary school prior to that okay. and then came back. He went to seminary school in Tennessee, I think, mm -hmm. and came back and got appointed by the church to take over this little church in mm -hmm. Ohio, Byesville, Ohio. Prior to that, he was always in business for himself, and even during the time he was a pastor. He only pastored for two or three years. He discovered right. there wasn't much money in that, right. <laughs> so okay. he went back into business for himself. What uh, kind of business was he doing? Anything? A variety of things okay. over his what years. He right. did, gosh, what all did he do? He did things like buying cheese and sausages from the Amish mm -hmm. in Ohio and okay. distributing, distributing them to stores all around that he had a route he did he used to put things together he started us all of us kids we started out selling when we were really really small he would go to the market early in the morning drive to Columbus come back with a truckload of tomatoes we'd make baskets putting them all together cardboard baskets and then go around door to door knocking on the door selling tomatoes or we would sell together or just individually you know, we would go individually. He would send us all out. And you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. So yeah. did he give you lessons? Like to tell you, okay, oh, yeah. now when you go there. Yes, he gave us a little speech to make. Right. And he would make donuts, and we'd go out and sell those donuts door to door. He even made horseradish, homemade horseradish. And that he sold to restaurants. We didn't sell that door to now, door. Now, your mother was helping out doing this stuff. No, she work. was working for... National Cash Register, the old NCR okay. at that time. So, yeah, Dad would put us out selling. That was my first job. Uh, when I turned 15, he was the regional manager. I guess I was regional manager for Curtis Circulation Company. You, some of the people, you might remember the old Saturday Evening Post. Right. That was their main magazine. Okay. So I went to work for him selling magazine subscriptions door to door at 15 at 15 okay i didn't have a driver's license didn't have a car okay i'll tell you a story about I that i want to hear that and we would go into a town all the little towns around ohio and most of them had a volunteer fire department or they had an american legion they had something that would loan sick room equipment to people so if you got injured and you needed a wheelchair, you needed a hospital bed, you needed a pair of crutches, you didn't have to go buy it. You could just go to the American Legion or the fire department and borrow it. So we would sell, we would get their blessing, we would be backed by them, and we would go in representing legally. We would say, I'm here on behalf of your fire department. They're raising money to buy sick room equipment. And to do this, we're offering magazine renewals or magazine subscriptions. And they raised quite a bit of money for that sort of thing. But the first day, he gave me some training. I went around with him, learned how to talk, learned how to knock on doors. He put me out of my territory, said, I'll pick you back, pick you up back here at 5 o'clock. I said, okay, that's fine. So I walked around all day, picked me up at 5 o'clock, and he said, so how'd you do? I said, well, I think I did pretty good. I sold $30 worth. He said, okay, that's not bad for your first day. I was getting a 50% commission on this, too. Okay. 
So his next question was, well, how much of your territory did you cover? I said, well, I covered it all. He said, you did? I said, yeah. He said, you went to every house? Yeah, knocked on every door. And you sold $30 worth? Yeah, sold $30 worth. He said, tell you what we're going to do. Tomorrow we're going to go back to every one of those houses that didn't buy, and I'm going to go with you, and you're going to knock on the door, and when they open the door you're going to explain again that I was here yesterday, but I didn't do a really good job explaining this to you. So let me explain again what we're doing. And he was standing off to the side listening to me. And that day I sold $50 worth. <laughs> and I didn't go through my whole territory. That was my first lesson in door-to-door -door selling, other than what we'd sold as kids. And that was easy because you're a little kid. And you right, people do it because you're a little kid, right? Yeah, my brother, uh, the one who passed away, used to tell the story about dad made a speech for him. And he'd go knock on the door. He's a little seven-year-old kid, maybe only six, knocking on the door and standing there selling packages of needles, uh, a cardboard package full of maybe three dozen different size needles in it. And he'd knock on the doors. Hello, my father has designed a program for young men like myself to help raise money for our college fund. And to do this, I'm selling these packages of needles. How many would you like to buy? <laughs> so that was his break into selling. So yeah, my father was a salesman his whole life. Oh, and wow. that's held up pretty well for me over the years too. I learned selling at a very young age. And even what I do today really involves a lot of selling. But don't you think all of us are selling in one way or the other? We are. And we just don't realize it. We many don't realize times. it right. You know, the first time you meet somebody, you're selling yourself to them or you're not. That's right. And if you can't sell yourself to the person in the proper way, or they don't sell themselves to you in the proper way, nothing's going to develop from that. So. Isn't that the truth? Okay, yeah. so from there, 15 on, you're selling the whole time. Did you go to college? I did. Okay, so when you finished high school, first of all, what kind of sports did you get? Did your father keep you working so much you couldn't do other activities? No, he didn't keep me that busy, okay. but I had a paper route, too, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I delivered newspapers during the week, and on Sunday mornings, we would get up early and do the paper route before going to church. And I also, on Wednesdays, I think I had, there was, do you remember a newspaper called The Grit? The Grit? No. You never knew I'm that West one? Coast. It's still around. It's online. Okay. okay. This was countryside Ohio, so Grit was a, mm -hmm. a newspaper of people like. That was a once-a-week newspaper, so I sold that, too. I had that, okay. too. Yeah. But I used to get in trouble with my route manager delivering newspapers because people would call in and complain that their newspaper wasn't there yet, and it might be 6 o'clock, 5.36. They wanted their evening newspaper. <coughs> so my manager knew where to find me every time. He would come down to this little shop in downtown where we lived, and I would be in front of the pinball machine. Shaking <laughs> 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 that machine. Because the guy who ran it, it was a nickel a game. And the guy who ran the shop was an old Italian guy. Vince was his name. And if you racked up games on the machine, Vince would pay you for them. So if you, let's say I won 50 games, he would pay me $2.50. So 
So rather than delivering newspapers, you to play the game and <laughs> yeah, make I'd money. rather just play the pinball game. <laughs> so, but sports, I didn't do a whole lot. I played baseball, little league baseball. Right. Tried football, didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a very tall person, or I wasn't a very big person back then. Mm-hmm. And the coach would put me up against the biggest guys on the team, put me on the line. I said, I don't need this. <laughs> so. <laughs> Being banged around like this. How'd you so. do academically? Pretty well. I did, did okay. You yeah. enjoyed school? Until I got in college. But what subjects did you like throughout school? What were some of the ones that Ooh, you back then, the I can tell you the ones I didn't like anything to do with geometry or trigonometry. Right. In fact, I had a geometry teacher who passed me one year because I promised her I would never take another <laughs> math class from her again. <laughs> What were you doing in the class that she didn't want you back? Outside of not doing well in the class, were you asking too many questions, or were you? No, I just wasn't doing. Where I would hide a comic book inside the math book. Okay, okay, I got you. But the other classes, I did okay. English classes, I did fine. Probably better than fine in that. The math, normal math, was okay. It was just geometry and trigonometry that Mm -hmm. I wasn't really taken with. So Mrs. Creevy passed me because I promised her that. Drama class, that was one of my, that was one of the most fun things I did. Did a lot of school plays. I enjoyed that, enjoyed the acting. I was in the school band. Played what instrument? I started, on the eighth grade, I started with the tuba. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the baritone, not the big one. Okay, not the big one, okay, the baritone. But then I switched to drums eventually, and I took guitar lessons. I I no longer play the guitar. My old hands just won't make it anymore, and I had a band. What type of band? Just one, a rock and roll band that would play for school dances or different programs. What did you you play, the guitar? Rhythm guitar. Okay. We had a lead guitar, rhythm guitar, drummer, bass player. One guy who played the keyboard, but believe it or not, we're in Ohio. This guy played the accordion. The accordion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We didn't do polkas, though. Okay. <laughs> that was, there were a lot of polkas around that time. I left a Lawrence Welk. But we did okay. We made some money doing that. We had That's fun. Neat. Wow. Yeah, were you close with your siblings, though? Were you close with your uh, Pretty much, yeah. You guys were really raised to the, be close. The youngest brother were so many years apart. We're about 12, 13 years apart. Mm-hmm. So I was already out and doing things right. on my own by the time he was born. Right. But still, we stay in touch now. So now all of you still get together sometime and some talk? Very seldom. I just don't get back to Ohio too mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. But we do stay in touch through social media right. more than anything. Mm. Uh, yeah. So that's interesting. Okay, so then you went to college. What did well, you I say? started college. <laughs> you started? At Ohio State. Okay. And this was in 1966. Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> so I know why you didn't finish. I could have finished. My intent was at that time. I was always thinking, "Oh, it'd be nice to be a lawyer." But partying and having fun was a lot more interesting than studying. My best class was ROTC and Phys Ed. Those were the only ones where I actually did okay. I made the dean's list. You know, that bottom part of the dean's list. (laughs) But you made it, right? Yeah, I made that list. uh, And got up one day, opened my mailbox, and there was uh, greetings and salutations. 
and I beat the draft by enlisting one day earlier than my draft notice in September. But you got your notice. I got my notice. You just decided to go and enlist. I just, yes, because what I did thought you, I would have a better choice. What did you enlist, in the Army? Or did Army, you, and you? when I went into the testing center, I, I had to go, to the, well, I didn't have to go, I had to be, I was drafted because my grades just didn't put me above that level. But they were drafting people, I thought, no, you weren't part of the lottery, this is before the lottery. No, this was lottery time. The, then you were so, gonna so, go so, anyway. I, mean, I, I think if you had a certain grade level, you could probably get exempted. For my or, time, they stopped hmm. doing that. I, all my I think this was in 66. I don't remember for yeah. sure. But I went in anyhow, I wound up enlisting a day ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And when the test results came back, the recruiting officer told me, he said, you're one of the guys who are in the, the top end of the test. And if you want to, you can go into something called the Army Security Agency. So they, they would only take the top 10% of the scores into the agency. So I said, okay, why not? So I, I figured I would get more choice, and, and I said, well, what are my choices? And they blah, blah, blah. So, ah, language school, that sounds good. I want to go to Monterey and go to language school. And a few days later, they came back and said, well, actually, these tests show that you should go to electronic school. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> okay. I'm lucky to know how to plug in something, much less do anything else. But I, instead of going to Monterey Language School, I got shipped off to, after basic training, I got shipped off to Fort Devens in Massachusetts for my training for the electronic warfare, as they called it. So you did that? That's what you... That's what I started was, doing. How long was your tech school? My... Your, your school, when you... School? You go, that's what you had to do when you went... I had service. to go through the school. I went in the Army in September... And I started the school in Massachusetts in November, but we didn't finish that until the next summer. It was six, seven months long. Okay. And I figured, okay, if I go in the security agency, I'll get my choice wrong. Next choice was, where do you want to go after Fort Devens? I want to go to Senop, Turkey. Okay. Why? 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 Many people ask me why. I had a girlfriend in the States at the time. And if I was going to Senop, I would have been sent down to Fort Meade to the NSA's training facility to get additional training. But again, the Army decided I should go to Japan <laughs> instead. So in the summer, August, I think it was, August or September of 1967, they sent me to Japan. Where in Japan? Hokkaido, Chitose. <laughs> yeah. Up in Hokkaido. So how long were you stationed there? I was there until I finished in 1970. So a bit over three years. Three, three years, years okay. and three months, yeah. Right. And t wait, how, I thought you stayed in your full 20. In so what? In the service. In the no, uh, I'll explain that. Okay, okay. okay. But, but you did, you, so your first duty station was in Japan. Right, in Chitose. That was my Chitose. only duty station after training. And you were working intelligence. Right. But you had to learn the language. So when did they send you to language I, No, I didn't have to learn the language. Okay, because no. you were doing electronic. Okay. Well, I switched a year into being there. I switched into something called special projects. Mm -hmm. There were only about 30 of us out of the whole group. Mm. Uh, the rest of it was electronic warfare telemetry, everything to do with that. But mm -hmm. the special mm -hmm. projects was 
a Navy-run project right. uh, reporting into uh, NSA. And you weren't allowed to talk about that then. No, and even now we're not supposed to. Some can. of the things. Right. I had my security clearance, mm -hmm. so I couldn't get married while I was in. I could have, but they would have put me to work sweeping floors or something for the rest of my tour. So I waited. Uh, I had met my wife during the last couple of years of being up there. So I, I got out in Japan. I was trying to decide. And then I got married. I, I finished my Army duty and got married just a few days later. So that means you spent four years in the service? Maybe? Four years of active duty. Four years active duty. Mm -hmm. okay. I did another 23 years of reserve duty later. That was how I qualified. While you for were here? Most of it here, some of it here, some in the U.S., some in Singapore. Okay. It was spread all around. So that's what cut your college time short. You decided not to go back in. You came out. I came out. You were here. Got out here, got married, trying to decide what I would do. Would I stay here? Would I go back to the States? So we decided to go back to the States, and then I went back to school at that time while I was working. I worked for a couple of years with my father, again, in sales, and then I went into the insurance business. Okay, doing what in insurance? Selling. Selling insurance. <laughs> Selling insurance, okay. yeah. yeah. Right. So I would go to a school in the early morning at Franklin University, take my classes, even on the weekend, even taught a class once there when the professor had, on insurance, when the professor had to be out mm -hmm. for the day, he asked me to take over the class, mm -hmm. so I taught for him. And while I was doing that, I was, then I became a sales manager running a team. And in the office where we were located, there was an insurance broker on the same floor. And I started talking to them. And I mentioned I had lived in Japan and my wife's Japanese and I speak a little bit of Japanese because I took lessons while I was in Chitose through the University of Maryland. The lady there said, well, why don't you write to this company in Philadelphia, the insurance company of North America? They have an office in Japan. Okay, why not? Opportunity knocks, you don't slam the door, right? right. So, so I wrote a letter. This was before emails. This was 1978. Right. I think it was at that time. Mm -hmm. We had been back in Ohio since 1970, living there, working. I was okay. in Columbus, working in the insurance industry. So you, when you met your wife, she spoke English when no, you met her? No, almost not at that time. And also, I was curious, how did, how were, you, were your parents receptive to you marrying a Japanese? Yeah, they had no problem with it, my parents. At all? Not but, at all. But all your friends? And friends were fine with it. They who, didn't. Who had the problem? Her parents, <laughs> her father <laughs> especially. <laughs> Your side was smooth. Her side was the one saying, Yes. Well, is she yeah. the only... Oh, no, 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 there are four girls. Okay. Yeah. She's not the oldest, is she? No. No, she's not. Okay. But they were in Hokkaido, and the father was very, very Japanese, and had never met me. You, mean Once, you married before he met you? No, we okay. married after. Okay. So finally, I, I had a, a very good Japanese friend who agreed to be our go-between, the Nakodo. And we arranged a meeting with her parents and her and me and my friend. And my friend spoke to them, uh, gave them very good feedback about me. I did what little Japanese I could do at the time. And we got on fine. And from that point on, everything was fine as far as I was concerned. How long had you known her before you met her father? A couple of years. Oh, a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. When we got married, her family was all there. Parents were there. We did a traditional... Shinto wedding in the hotel in Sapporo, and then made the decision to come back to the States. Stopped off in California to see friends for a few days. She had to be really apprehensive, not speaking any English. Yeah, especially because we didn't fly back together either. I came back on a military plane, 
and she came back on a commercial flight. But I was waiting for her at the airport okay. when she got in, right. fortunately. So how did she pick up her English? What did you do? Just, Just over the years. You put her right in class or something? Right no, no, she picked it up. She did self-study, learned it herself. She's bright. <laughs> so, right. And now she can hold her own in how English. How long afterwards did you have kids? We were married for four years oh, four before years. we had then our first, first, first yeah. child. You have two daughters and a son. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Are they all married? All married, yeah. All married. Are you a grandfather how many times? Three times, yeah. Three times? Yep. Each one has a child? Each has one. So how many girls and how many boys have you got? Yeah. Two girls, a 28-year-old granddaughter oh. <laughs> who, who has her own business. Okay. Like you, she does podcasts, uh, YouTube videos. She does a lot of online training and coaching for young ladies or men who need to improve their health, get in better shape. Is that, what's, her, what's, her, what's the name of it? LeahPetersFitness.com. Leah? Leah, L-E-A-H, LeahPetersFitness.com. Uh, Peters and you can find her right away. Oh, easily, you can find easily. her. Yeah, On Instagram or YouTube or her website. Okay. She's been doing this, Leah's been doing this since she was an undergrad. So how many years would that be now? 10 years maybe, ten years, she's 28. Okay. Yeah. Wow. She used to compete in bodybuilding contests, mm -hmm. but she de uh, competed in the uh, bikini division okay. and won several awards. She got out of that and she went into more coaching. She's a certified nutritionist, has her master's of education, and she was thinking about teaching, but she does, she's so busy with her own business, coaching young ladies, Is helping them. Is she your them. first grandchild? She's the first, yeah. The oh, other yeah, two are. Say, you have to say hello to Leah then. Oh, hi Leah. <laughs> <laughs> Watch her videos too. <laughs> That's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, she's she's the oldest, twenty eight, and okay. then the next one is another girl. She will be eight in another month. Okay. And a grandson who's six. My oldest daughter has a girl. Okay. Second daughter has a boy. Son has okay, a girl. Okay. Okay. I yeah. got you. Okay. Oh, and she's had hers later than he had his. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. So I've got uh, one daughter in Texas and the other two kids are in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Okay. Are they close by each other? Close enough. About okay. 30 minutes apart. Um, yeah. That's nice. That's yeah, nice. So they get to see each other. That's good. And we yeah. all get together at least once, usually twice a year. Mm -hmm. Them coming here or vice versa? It could be them coming mm -hmm. here, but usually it's us going there, mm -hmm. going to San Francisco. And you said your oldest daughter was in my program. She was when she was in the when she was in kindergarten and then in your gymnastics the private class you ran when she was probably six and seven maybe eight years old she remembers you and what's her name Naomi Hi Naomi <laughs> I'm gonna look in the yearbook and see it and I might post it up I don't want to embarrass you or anything but I might put your picture up as well what you look like when I taught you. <laughs> Yeah, she's probably in there, I'm sure. That's good, that's good. Yeah. I don't know if Stephanie was in your class. That's the okay. second daughter. How many years difference between the two? Three years. No, I only taught at the American School for three years. Yeah. So she, she probably came in the year I left, in 80. No, she would have gone in in 81, I think. Okay, right. She was at born years in all right. 82, maybe. Mm -hmm. She was born, yeah. I think she would have gone into the American School in 82. Did you have her at the um, nursery kindergarten in Nakamakuro? Ever? Not her, no. Okay. No, she went to a Japanese Yochien. Okay. And I then she started the American school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, wow. So all of the kids went to the American school here. We mm -hmm. lived here. We moved back to Japan, as I mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, from 
I wrote that letter to the insurance company in North America, and about six weeks went by, and I got a call from them. They wanted to invite me to Philadelphia for an interview. I said, okay. Right. Went. Uh, they were just starting up a marketing program here for their insurance company, and they hired me and a Japanese guy. They brought us both to Philadelphia to live for a few months for training, traveling around the country, going to different trade shows and things. And then we came back. We moved to Japan in 79. The whole family? The whole family, yeah. We moved here in the autumn of 79. Got here just in time for one of the biggest typhoons Japan had had for a long time. <laughs> so, that must and, have been a nice welcome. Yeah. <laughs> and then we stayed here for the next almost nine years. I switched companies in the middle, went from INA to Mutual of Omaha, United of Omaha. Yeah, what year was this? 85. Mm-hmm. Because they had an office close by the Air Force Base. They did have. Yeah. A guy named Lee Miller. Right this, that's right. Yeah. I know Lee Miller. Yeah, right. Lee I knew Lee Miller. Yeah, Lee's, yeah he's gone. He's now. Right. But they were also just a startup at the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. here in Japan. So I joined for the startup, stayed here three years, went back to Omaha then for three years, and still running back and forth to Japan all the time. So I was here for the startup, and I came back for the sell-off okay. when they sold the company. What year was that? That was in 1991. 91. Yeah. yeah, we were just starting up in Japan. It was mm-hmm. a small office in Kamiacho. <laughs> Only a few people. Eventually, we moved it over to Shinjuku. Mm-hmm. But I came back when they sold it off to one of the Japanese companies. And I, meanwhile, I got a call from a headhunter in New York that AIG was looking for somebody to come to Japan. And they, they called me to New York, had interviews. They were happy with what I answered, but it wasn't a Japan assignment. It was a Singapore assignment. Okay. So in 1991, we moved to Singapore working for AIG. In the insurance division, doing what? Still, I was in the life and health division covering nine countries. Okay. Taking care of group insurance mainly. Right, I was going to say, yeah, for for companies and stuff like that. Yeah, including Japan. So I was traveling Mm -hmm. back and forth to Japan Mm -hmm. and all the Southeast Asian countries. And a couple of years, two or three years into that, I got got approached by another company, the AXA, the French group. Yes, yes. And... They hired me as the regional life, head of regional life, to look at companies, to buy companies. So we bought a company that had offices in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. Um, I hired somebody to run Hong Kong. I went up as the country manager of Malaysia. And then two years later, I came back down to Singapore to be the CEO for AXA Life Insurance there. And I stayed there until 2002, so almost 10 years in Singapore, plus a little bit of that year and a half in Malaysia. And I got hired by Aegon to come back here as president of their direct marketing insurance company. Mm-hmm. Did that until 2006. Knowing that I was going to get out of the business, I had started my own company. You'd already started I had already started it, yeah. I had somebody run it for the first right. year. In 2006, I took over running that company, that company is called iSearch. Which you still have. Which That's I still have. Executive search company. Yeah, executive, executive search and recruiting is the right. way we word okay. it. Right. And so we've been in business 18 years. Started out by recruiting for insurance companies, okay. myself and Imagine. one other person. And over the years, we've built it up to where we have a dozen people now. We have an office in San Francisco, and we're part of something called the Continental Search Alliance. Which is what? Which is a group of individually owned 12 companies in 12 countries 
that we all cooperate, coordinate, work together. If I had a Japanese company client that wanted to open an office or hire somebody in Sweden or France or Italy, you know, Finland, Singapore, I could introduce my partners there and they would take care of that. I see. And then our partners. Share, right. Yeah. And we have a, we do oh, a share of it. That's really good. I'm how working long, how with How long has that existed? Pardon? That alliance. How long has that alliance existed? Whoever thought of that, well, that's a great idea. That's been in existence, I think, about 10 years. Okay. So we each pay an annual membership dues, and then we share business back and forth and yeah. ideas. Who started, who started that? I mean, that's a great idea. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, the guy in Holland and the guy in England, the two of them started mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And maybe the guy in France mm -hmm. also might have been one of the originals. Nice. I just finished a couple of assignments with one in Sweden, the other one in Singapore. We're just in the starting stages of a couple of assignments for a Spanish company. And our, our San Francisco office uh, works with a couple of Japanese companies that have operations there and need to hire people, and vice versa, mm -hmm. U.S. Uh, Silicon Valley companies that are coming into Japan. Mm. that need to hire people here. So the fields that you're basically interested in, still insurance? Or insurance is still one of that's them. That's the yeah. first one, of course. Yeah, I turned that over to another guy. I trained him in it, and he runs that, that market now. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of automotive recruiting, mm -hmm. and that's moved more and more into AI and VR these days rather than so much the engineers. We still do the engineers and salespeople. Mm -hmm. And we do manufacturing technology. And what else do we do? Consumer goods, retail, digital marketing, e-commerce, that sort of thing. That's, That's nice. the area that I personally still take care of. You like that? Even at this ripe old age, I still like keep, that. yeah. What do you see for the future for your company? Continued growth. Mm -hmm. I see Japanese are more and more open to changing jobs than they were when I started the company 18 years ago. It's easier to reach out to people now. There are more ways to get in touch with people. Still not as easy as recruiting in the U.S. or in Europe. It's still a very tough market to crack for recruiting in Japan. Where do you think that is? I think there's some, something to be said about resistance to change in Japan. More so than employees in the U.S., they're Quite often in the U.S., they'll be looking for the next good opportunity. I've been at this company three years. It's time to do something new. That would be pretty short in Japan. And if you've worked for five or six companies, that's frowned upon by many employers. So that resistance to change, the to starting something new and working with people that you don't know, you haven't worked with, oh, I've got to start all over again. Sometimes family issues come into play. The family doesn't want the person to look at a new job. Maybe the spouse is happy being part of a big insurance, Japanese insurance group, for example, that their spouse is part of that, and that becomes part of their identity. To go to work for one of these foreign companies, hmm, there's risk in that. Unfortunately, there has been risk in working for foreign companies over the years. We, you know and I know there are companies that come, stay a couple of years, and Oh, we haven't made it yet, so let's just close it up. Get rid of all those people. That happens. It's it's very unfortunate. Companies, Western companies, don't have the patience of Japanese companies sometimes. Many years ago, more than that, more than a few. I was in the U.S., and I bought a, what were the old PDAs that we used to carry around? You remember those? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyhow, I bought one of those, and it came with a little sticker. 
that said, register this PDA today and put this sticker on it. And then if you lose it and somebody finds it, we'll get it back to you if they report it to us. And that company was called Boomerang It. Boomerang It. Boomerang It. I came back to Japan and a friend of mine saw him a couple of days later. He had left his, his cell phone in a taxi and he never got it back. And I thought, hmm, what if he had this sticker on it? This was before you could do Find My Phone and all that, oh, right. about 12 years ago. What if you had this sticker on it here in Japan? Somebody finds your phone, they call the number, and you get your phone back. Wouldn't that be a great idea? So I contacted this company in the U.S., Boomerang It, got a hold of the owner, guy who started the company, and I said, would you be interested in using your name and doing this in Japan? Yeah, sure. He was an entrepreneur. He was happy to do something. So I approached a, a Japanese friend of mine who had an organization that had about 300,000 members. And I thought, well, okay, this is a good organization to talk to. Showed him the business plan. I had it all written out and didn't really fly with him at that time. I said, okay, that's fine. Well, that's Okay. I went back, I looked at my business plan, I kept talking to the company in the U.S., and a year later I went back to this same friend. I said, what do you think about this now? And then, for some reason, he decided, well, let's give it a try. So four of us each put our money into this, started the company, started boomerang at Japan. It did a little differently in Japan. They went more to corporate sponsors. A lot of Japanese companies give their people phones and, and laptops or bags to carry around. And many of them now, uh, Hitachi was one of the first ones, and this is part of their environmental program too, because rather than something being lost and stuck in a warehouse somewhere or a room somewhere, it gets back to the person. So that's still how it operates in Japan, selling to corporates who, who do these. I sold my shares back to the company, so I'm no longer involved with the Japanese one other than maybe advice once in a while. But a few years down the road, the one in the U.S., they were doing construction in the building and their servers got all full of dust. So the guy who ran it said, okay, and I've done this, that's long enough now, let's just let it rest. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and every time I'd go back, I'd talk to him. And one day I had lunch with his personal assistant, talked to her, and then a week later, talked to one of the ladies who had worked for him in this boomerang it, and she came to the lunch. She said, Eddie wants to know if you take this company over, will you continue to support the U.S. members and support Japan? I said, of course I will, especially Japan. I started it, so I'm going to support that. And the U.S., I really believe in this, in this program. So she said, okay, in that case, Eddie will turn the company over to you. So I took it over about four years ago, four and a half years ago, and we've launched the website, boomerangit.com. We are getting ready to launch a marketing campaign now. It took about three years for my developer to completely rebuild the system. We had to recover all the data out of these damaged hard drives that were out of those servers. The system was a real hodgepodge of things. It looked like something maybe 10 or 12 people had put together. We now have a very sleek, very clean system. We have a new website. Japan operates separately, as I said. It's still around, but it's not doing the same way. And we've got about 300,000 members in it. There are actually about a million, but 
many of those over the years, the emails have changed. So we've got about 300,000. We're going to be starting our marketing campaign here very soon. So if you need a lost and found sticker, <laughs> that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's basically tags that you can put on your bag, stickers you can put on your phone or your camera, mm -hmm. or these tripods that you have here. But that means that people have to call that. People call it or go on our website. Or go on your um, website, right. Yeah, and report. We get two or three calls or, or reports every week that, hey, I just found this bicycle. It's got one of the stickers, or I found this bag over here. I had I bought this backpack in a thrift mm -hmm. shop. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure it's not a stolen when your label is on it. Right. So we, we can go into our database and find if the person who got the original label registered, registered it. Right. So they do have to register. Uh -huh. But if now we've set the system up so that if you bought a package of labels, we know those labels belong to you, whether you ever register anything or not. I got you, because you have the whole list. We have your name, name, name against that list of labels in oh, there. Right. So you can put labels on everything, never register, right. and we know it's yours when it's found. So uh, we've been well. These labels system. are difficult to take off. Obviously, the, the adhesive. Must yeah, be they're hard strong. to take off once they right, must be once they've cured. Adhesive, it's a strong right. glue. Yeah, yeah, they can be taken off, but it takes that, a bit right. of work. Yeah. And the bag tags are like suitcase tags or bag mm -hmm. tags. And we'll be coming out with more products as we yeah. go through it. Well, over the years, I've always been involved in a little bit of something off on the side. Even mm -hmm. when I was working in the life insurance business, I started building computers about the same time that Michael Dell did. But Michael Dell was apparently <laughs> smarter than me and took it on to be a business. I can remember building a computer for a guy when we thought, I'm putting a 32 megabyte hard drive Ooh, in this big. computer for you and that was big, big back then. And, and he was the IT head for <laughs> one of the companies in Omaha and he thought that was great I had a real estate license in Hawaii once yeah. the grand idea of selling Hawaiian real estate to Japanese vacationers over the years I I've completed different things. Most things I haven't dropped. I went on to finish my education, got my MBA while I was in Singapore. In what? Uh, in just business, in business, business yeah, right. master's. Master's. yeah, I got it from California right. State University. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, did a Limra Leadership Institute fellow. I became a fellow of that by taking their courses, chartered life underwriter. I've always been a believer in lifelong learning, for one thing, which I try to preach to people as much as possible. Always keep learning, always something new to learn. When opportunity knocks, at least open the door. <laughs> That's. That's one of the things that I find with candidates in recruiting here in Japan. A lot of times that they'll knock on the door and it's, oh, not interested in changing. Oh, I'm happy where I am. I'm glad you're happy. Why are you happy? Is there anything you're not happy about? The recruiting business has been good here in Japan. I like it. I enjoy it. Uh, the clients are great. All of our clients, almost all of our clients are foreign companies. We don't mind recruiting for Japanese companies, and we do have Japanese-speaking staff, but most of them are foreign companies. Mm -hmm. And most of our candidates are bilingual candidates, not all, but most. But again, many of them, when that door, when somebody knocks on the door, they just slam it closed too fast. They don't even want to listen. And what does it cost you to listen? Maybe five minutes of your time, right? If I didn't listen to you, I wouldn't be sitting here today, Lance. That's true. That's true. You, <laughs> give me, give me the, you give me my five minutes. <laughs> you did. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Joe, I want to thank you for the sure. time. Thank, thank you. you so All right. Much. Good being here today. Thank you. Thank Thanks. You. All of you watching this podcast, make sure that you press like, subscribe, and remember, 
It's all unknown, so keep reaching for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed.